On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. The topic of our conversation this time, Mike, is his promise. And I think we're going to be focusing on a promise to a particular individual. Who, who was that? Yeah, we're going to be looking at a very well-known story in John chapter 4 of when Jesus met a Samaritan woman at a well and look at the promise that he made to her. Where was that well? It was in the what was the Old Testament uh, city of uh, Shechem, and which by New Testament times was called Sychar or possibly just outside of that. So just to locate that, it was sort of midway between Jerusalem and Galilee, where many of our conversations have been taking place. We're just over 60 miles south of Capernaum, and we're about 45 miles north of Jerusalem. So it it's nearly at the halfway point as Jesus makes a journey from Jerusalem back up to his hometown. Well, let's hear the story from John chapter 4. Yeah, well, it's quite a long story, David, so I think perhaps one of the best things to do is, is to take it bit by bit, as it were. But let, let's set the scene, shall we, from John 4. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptising more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it wasn't Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So he's in Jerusalem and he's now heading north. Yeah. And he's doing it to avoid a needless confrontation before God's time with the religious leaders. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, noon, as we would put it. It says he had to go through Samaria. Why? <laughs> well, Samaria was that block of territory between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. So you could look at a map and think, well, it's obviously had to go through there. But actually, it wasn't obvious to Jews at all. Because Samaria, of course, was the area that had the Samaritans that were so hated by the Jews in those times. Why? Well, it went right back to the story of the exile when the northern tribes had been conquered by Assyria in 721 BC and had been scattered across its empire and in return, they'd sent other conquered peoples into the northern areas who had intermixed and intermarried with some of the poorer folk who'd been left behind. So as far as a good Orthodox Jew was concerned in those days, these Samaritans were, weren't really God's people. They, they were a mixture. They, they sort of followed partly the law of Moses. In fact, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, and didn't accept any of the prophets or any of the writings after that. So they only had a partial revelation. So a mixture of their rejection of the whole of the Jewish scriptures and the history that they were a mixed people who were not true Jews had led by New Testament times to most Jews absolutely despising Samaritans. So instead of going 
as it were, the short route, the natural, obvious route through Samaria, they would head east from Jerusalem and take that road through Jericho down to the River Jordan and follow the road up that went on the east side of the Jordan, the King's Highway, go all the way up, and then once they'd reached Galilee, cross over the Jordan again and come into Galilee that way. Anything rather than so much as put a sandal on the dust of those hated Samaritans. And yet, it says Jesus had to go through that area. He didn't have to go through that area because of geography, but because his father had a very special appointment for him there. In fact, traveling here today as we have through the arid countryside to this location where this event happened, that wouldn't have been clearly the easiest route anyway. I mean, it's, it's rough terrain. It is very rough terrain. I mean, it's very, very hilly as we've seen coming here lots of gorges and winding paths would have been there and the other thing of course it is incredibly hot we're in the sort of low to mid 30s centigrade at the moment and thankfully we've been traveling in an air-conditioned vehicle but if you could imagine what it would be like to walk for hour after hour in that rugged terrain and in that stifling heat um, it, it must have been you know, incredibly demanding. Indeed. I mean, I'm trying to imagine, having travelled through this area now, where you would get water. There was a, a guy on a donkey and he had an empty plastic bottle in his hand and he was waving it at uh, passing traffic as if to say, could anybody stop and give me some water? Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, water is crucial to survival in this sort of terrain and this sort of heat. So where Jesus ends up stopping is a very natural place to stop and he stops at a historic well uh, it's a well that goes you know right back to old testament times uh, at least uh, a well that uh, the patriarchs had used themselves and that had been passed on so it, it was a well-known well uh, and a well that was going to provide life-giving water in that sort of situation what was it known as it was known as Jacob's Well, after the patriarch Jacob. Um, and today, uh, that well still exists. In fact, here we are in the courtyard of the Greek Orthodox Church, where that well still is to this day. It's down sort of in the crypt of the church here. And we know that from, oh, really, earliest Christian times, certainly we've got records from the third century of Christian pilgrims venerating this site as the place where Jesus met this woman. So I think we're on, you know, pretty secure historical grounds here. Wells have a way of not moving. <laughs> and this well has been here literally for thousands of years. So the actual well, it might have perhaps a modern top to it, but you can peer down into the well and see where that source of water came from. Yeah, uh, I mean I just looked down it now and uh, you know you can just see the water shimmering down below. At the moment the well is not as deep as it used to be. The water's I think something like 20 meters down according to the books 
but I think it might have been a little bit deeper today. But apparently it used to be as much as uh, 40 metres deep, uh, even in the early 20th century. So a very deep well, and of course you need to go deep in an arid environment like this to find uh, the water that you need. So this church here is one that's been built on the site of many churches before it to preserve and safeguard that well. And it's still there with a little wall around the top, uh, an, an iron frame over it now, and a pulley and a bucket that still to this day can be dropped down to get the water. Well, just remind us of what happened then when Jesus came to this well. Let's read on. We ended where he, tired as he was from the journey, we've said before, Jesus was the Son of God who truly became a human being. And we can understand how by noon, in the fierce heat, and having walked all those miles so far, remember he's already uh, covered about 45 miles from Jerusalem since he set off. So he's tired by the journey and he sits down at the well. So let's pick up the story again from John chapter 4, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Why does John sort of point that out? <laughs> well, it's probably because many of his readers were not Jewish readers. Yeah, there's been a long battle of was John written for Jews or Gentiles? I think it was written for both. There's so much Old Testament imagery that only Jews would have understood it. But there are so many bits like this of explaining the downright obvious that it must have also been written for Gentiles, so he's referring back here to that division that I spoke about earlier about how Jews and Samaritans simply didn't associate and they absolutely would have not shared a drinking vessel because for a devout Jew, the moment a Samaritan, a Gentile drank from that vessel, it would have been unclean. So what Jesus is doing here is incredible. And the woman's shocked. She's shocked because you're a Jew and you're asking me, a Samaritan? And no, not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. Now, still in some cultures today, it's the same, that it's improper for a man to speak with a woman in public. And it certainly wasn't proper for a woman to approach a rabbi in those days and to speak to him in that way. So on two counts here, the woman shocked. What, is, what on earth are you doing talking to me and asking me for help? So Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Then he said to her, Go call your husband and come back. 
I don't have a husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is, is not your husband. So what you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. For God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you, I'm he. What strikes me is that she stops to have this conversation. She could have put her head down and walked away, but she's engaged with this conversation with Jesus. Yeah, because I think it was God's moment for her. Now remember, culturally, this was a very unusual thing to do. What are you doing asking me for a drink? She could just have quickly given it to him and gone. Was there something going on in her heart? Was there something she recognised about this one? I don't know. It doesn't look like it at first. But the real reason she stopped is it was God's moment for her, even though she herself didn't know it at this point. And of course, you know, the heat here, especially when you're out in the sunshine, is just another reminder that water is a precious commodity. Talking of drinking and thirst and so on, it's a, it's a topic on everybody's lips, I'm sure. Yeah, good picture there on everybody's lips, David. Um, undoubtedly, yeah, w water was crucial. And um, So what Jesus does is he takes this as an image. We've seen him, haven't we, use so much different imagery in his parables and teaching. And he's using an image here. He's saying, do you know what? <laughs> if only you knew who was talking to you now, you'd ask for living water. Now, do you know what? As Christians, we often make a big thing of this living water, spiritual water. Actually, to a Jew, living water meant fresh water. It was the opposite of stagnant water. If only you knew who you were talking to, I'd be able to offer you fresh water that you don't know about. And the woman, of course, is immediately captivated, isn't she? You know, and she thinks, well, that's great, but excuse me, you know, you don't have a bucket and this well is very deep, you know. Are you greater than one of the patriarchs, you know, gave us this well initially? I can't see a spade in your hand to, to dig one for yourself. So she's still thinking living water, fresh water in very tangible terms. But of course, Jesus is about to take this conversation and twist it. And by the way, this conversation is a great model for evangelism today. Starting where people are at, starting with the things that interest them and the questions that they have rather than what we think they have, and looking to draw on from that. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. So she understood water on one level but jesus <laughs> is trying to explain it on another level does, does she get it yeah she she doesn't at first 
because um, he goes on, doesn't he, in that reading that we said, you know, ever drinks from this water here down this well, the well we've just been inside this church to look at, you know, will thirst. But I have a water. It's almost as if he's putting water in inverted commas there, metaphorically speaking. I have a water for life that whoever drinks from that water will never get thirsty. They'll never have to come back to a well for it again. They'll, they'll never have to look for another source of life. So he's still being somewhat enigmatic. He's, you know, sometimes we rush to try and get the whole gospel out the first few minutes that we ever meet someone. And Jesus was pretty shrewd. You know, he used to drop little tasty tidbits in, tantalizing tidbits that would, would get people thinking and talking and that's exactly what she does so give me this water so i won't have to come back to this well that we've just looked at she obviously would love to have in effect you know a tap in her house rather than having to traipse to the well and very often you know wells weren't necessarily in the center of the village they might be outside the village it's really odd by the way perhaps we could just say this at this point you know, the fact that she was coming to the well at midday, no one in their right mind goes to the well at midday. Well, it would be ridiculously hard to do that. I wouldn't like to be carrying buckets of water in this heat now, David. You know, you go to get your water either first thing in the morning before the sun comes up or later in the evening as the sun starts to go down and it's cooler. And so scholars have surmise that you know why was she here one on her own again unusual most women went in groups for safety and protection why is she here on her own why is she here at midday it definitely looks like what she goes on to talk about having had five husbands and now living with a man who's not her husband had caused something of a scandal even among her own neighbors and so she was one of these outsiders that we look at in in another episode one of those people on the margins that just wasn't accepted and i love this story because here is jesus again reaching to someone who's on the margins for more reasons than one you know she's not only a samaritan but even her fellow samaritans seem to be rejecting her because of her lifestyle you know in in judaism at this time we know that that women were permitted to divorce once possibly twice but beyond that really was you know beyond the bounds now, if that was similar in Samaritan culture, then to have had five husbands and to be with another man was immorality beyond immorality in those days. And hence, she shunned and hence she comes looking for this water on her own. Is it elsewhere that Jesus said, I've come to bring life and life in all its fullness? Is that a similar point he's making, really? Yes, it is. He's using this image of fresh water to exactly speak of that you know water is we know the most fundamental thing we need in life yeah you know, we can get away with not eating for a long time jesus got away with not eating for 40 days when he was fasting didn't he but we can't get away with not drinking for very long our bodies simply aren't made like that and so jesus is using this as a picture just as in ordinary everyday life you simply cannot get by without water i want you to know in life there is a inverted commas water there is a spiritual dimension in life that you cannot get by without living 
And yet, if you would only come to me, it's freely available. So he makes his promise to her. Does she accept his promise, despite her backstory? Well, it, <laughs> it gets a bit close, doesn't it, first of all? I mean, she's going to accept the promise eventually, but as with most people coming to faith in Christ, there's a bit of a journey. And, you know, she's, she starts to feel the heat a little bit because Jesus suddenly, out of the blue, it almost looks like he changes the topic of the conversation completely. You know, she's saying, please, I'd love this water that you're offering. And Jesus says, go and get your husband. And then she has to say, I, I don't have a husband. And he goes on to reveal the five husbands she's had. What's going on there? Jesus has got what is called later in the New Testament, a word of knowledge, knowing something that had happened because the Holy Spirit had revealed it to him and whispered it in his heart. And even then, you know, she's, you can feel her perhaps, put yourself in the picture, she's starting to squirm now. This is the thing that the whole community, the whole village is pointing a finger at her. Oh no, not this guy again. So what does she do? Well, she does what people often do today when they start to feel a little bit challenged by the gospel. She tries to change the topic of conversation. She tries to introduce uh, a sort of theological question. That Jesus, do you know what? I can see that you're a prophet. But, but listen, you know, really before we go any further, I've had this theological question on my mind for ages because our fathers, our ancestors say we should worship on our mountain, Mount Gerizim, which is where they thought Moses had commanded them to do so. And you Jews say that, you know, no, you should worship uh, in, in Jerusalem, you know. I find this a fascinating theological question, she's saying. But Jesus sees it for what it is. He sees it's a red herring. And there are times in our evangelism when we need to be ready to answer people's genuine questions. Because people do have questions. You know, they want to know things. But sometimes those questions can be red herrings to avoid the point. And we need to ask God to show us when that is. So Jesus sort of steers her back on course. Yeah, absolutely. He cuts straight back and says, believe me, woman, time's coming when it won't matter whether you worship on this mountain or that mountain. Because it's not about mountains, it's about a person. It's about worshipping God in spirit and in truth through his Messiah, Jesus. And where we ended that conversation, she again just tries to deflect it when she says, oh, I know that when Messiah comes, he'll explain all to us. It's almost as if she's saying that, oh, you know, all these theological questions are too big for, for someone like me, but, you know, Messiah will sort it out when he comes. And Jesus says here openly, why? Because he's in a Samaritan context where they had so little expectation of what Messiah would be like. Of course they didn't because they'd rejected all the writings of the Old Testament, all the prophets of the Old Testament. And so there was no baggage associated with it, like they were for Jews, who the minute you said, I'm Messiah, thought, aha, political statement. It wasn't that for Samaritans. And so openly, he can say to her, it's me, I who speak to you am he. Pregnant pause. I was going to say, what on earth would be her reaction to that? <laughs> well, 
before she's got time to give any reaction, we get a reaction from some others. So let's go back to the story and read for a minute. Verse 27, just then Jesus' disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, here's her reaction now. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? So she's not quite there yet. She's been impacted enough by Jesus's challenges and questions to think, my goodness, could this be the one? She's nearly there, but not quite. So she goes and gets everyone else in the village and says, come on, let's go and see him. And then they came out of the town and made their way towards Jesus, who's by now having a conversation with his disciples about this whole thing that's going on and reminding them that the harvest is, is really ripe for harvest, including people like this. I noticed that she left her water jar. I mean, that's got kind of gold in it. <laughs> I a, know. That's a, that's a crazy thing to do. It is, isn't it? When I read this story again earlier today, that one leapt out to me. I thought, well, that's the very thing that you came to get. And yet here now she goes hurrying off. It's as if the most important things in life suddenly no longer are the most important things in life when you're starting to see who Jesus is. Does the reaction of the disciples surprise you? I don't think it does really, because at this stage, the disciples are really still thinking that Messiah's come for the Jews. And although Jesus has worked among Gentiles at times, although he's taught about God's heart for people beyond, although the Old Testament scriptures clearly show that God's heart has always been for the nations, at the moment they're, they're still stuck. We're thinking it's about Israel. So in that sense, no, I'm not really surprised. Do you know what can be a bit like us? Sometimes we can think the gospel's just for me and people like me, can't we? And not people out there. What about the reaction of the villagers that she's gone to see? You know, not far from here, we're at Jacob's Well. She's gone off to see them and tell them. <laughs> Let's just finish the story then. Verse 39 says that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Oh, wow, let's just pause there for a moment. Because of the woman's testimony. Something's happened somewhere. She's just moved that last step to not just knowing about Jesus, but to acknowledging who Jesus is. And her testimony of, there was this guy who came along and told me everything I'd ever done, and I started to think about it and realized, and it looks like he is the Messiah. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two more days in this town where we are now. And listen to this. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe now just because of what you've said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. How amazing that because Jesus listened to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and took a way back to Galilee that he perhaps wouldn't normally take but did take that day, not only is 
one Samaritan woman's life turned round and freed from the clear mess she'd been living in. But a whole number of villagers come to faith in Christ as well. The whole community actually would have been impacted. They knew her, probably knew her backstory, knew that she came to the well, knew that it was just another ordinary day, in a sense. Exactly, and there's the power of Christian testimony. Uh, never be afraid of letting people know what you were and what Jesus has become. You know, people might argue against Jesus even existing. They might argue against, oh, the Bible's got changed or all sorts of things. But what they cannot argue about is your story, your testimony. And that's why it's good that we've always got our story at our fingertips. You know, we might have to shape it slightly differently depending who we are talking to. But having our story at our fingertips, just ready to share in different contexts and in different ways, nobody can deny that. That's your story. That's your experience. And it was as this woman shared her experience that their hearts started to be open and they shared that experience of the promise of Jesus to give new life to all who simply come and ask him. And we're still remembering her story, even now. I mean, she's remembered by this church, even. It's funny, isn't it? The outcast and despised, not only by Jews, but by her own people. I love how in the gospel we see again and again Jesus going for the marginalised, the outcast, the despised, and finding a welcome there, and their lives being transformed, and them being brought in and here at this church this church is reasonably modern but it's on a side of a church that goes back right back to earliest christian times because they've remembered this woman in fact she was even given a name this church is sometimes called the church of the holy well but i think it's more formal name is is the church of saint fatina and Fatina is the name that was given to this Samaritan woman. Now, whether that really was her name and it's been carried on from earliest tradition, I just don't know. But I like this, that someone who was a nobody on the outside found the promise of Jesus to be true for her, responded to it, and a life so changed, wow, that we're sitting in the courtyard of a church today that recalls what happened 2,000 years ago. Well, do pray for us, Mike, as we think of her, her story and our story. Lord, for those of us who do follow you, help us always to be ready to have our story, our testimony ready to share with others. Help us always to be wise in our evangelism, not having something prepackaged, but being ready to respond to people's needs and questions. And for those who aren't yet Christians today listening to this, help them to know that they are not beyond your reach. They might feel outsiders, but they aren't to you. And you would make the biggest journey in the world to reach them and to find them and you offer to them your gift of life. To all who lack knowledge, Lord, I've messed up. I can't do it on my own. I'm trusting you died to pay the price of my sins. Come, forgive me. Be my Lord and Saviour. 
and help me to walk my life with you. Thank you for your promise, Lord. We bless you today in your name. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.